Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, let's turn together to the book of 1 Peter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided by the church, you'll find that on page 1116. 1 Peter. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful to you for this day that you have made and given to us as a gift and expression of your kindness. Thank you for this Lord's Day set apart to gather with your people. Thank you for the privilege and the freedom of doing so, of singing to you, of speaking to you, of hearing from you in your word. We pray that you would breathe upon our time together. You would reveal yourself to us, Lord, that our hearts might be filled with love toward you and one another, that we be moved to obedience and joy and life in Christ. Pray that you would help us to see you in the words of this passage, understand you more clearly and follow you more faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. So imagine with me that we as a church had a pen pal in another country. So for the kids here, a pen pal is this ancient thing before cell phones and email. when we used to write on pieces of paper and send letters to friends far away. And we would hear back from them when they sent a letter back to us. So imagine we had a pen pal as a church. And this pen pal was in a country that in this imaginary world was unaffected these last two years by any of the trials that those in this room have encountered. This pen pal is an older, godly man that we look up to, whose insights and instructions we value because he's a faithful Christian who has endured many trials in the past for the sake of Christ. So we write him, looking for encouragement and instruction. We speak maybe of the coronavirus and the way our society has been turned upside down these past two years. We write about masks and vaccines and mandates. We write with tears about those who have lost their jobs. We write of relationships that have been strained or even broken over varying political or social views. Marriages that have ended. Health that has declined. We write about the challenges for the young people among us who have been isolated at home and had a certain sense of hopelessness about the future bred into them. And all the other personal trials that you in this room have faced. And so we send our letter off and we await eagerly for the return. And so one day the return letter arrives and we gather around to read it and we open it and to our surprise, it's only one line. It says, Praise God. Thank you for this encouraging and hopeful report, brothers and sisters. I'm praying with and for you. How might you respond to that? Maybe you'd expect a more empathetic or relatable response. Maybe you'd expect him to join you in grumbling and resentment of your present circumstances. Maybe you'd expect them to commiserate with you and tell you that your feelings of despair are well-founded. But he doesn't. 
did he misread the letter that we sent? Did we send the wrong one? How can that be his response to us pouring out our hearts over the difficulties that we're facing? I wonder if that's how the Christians in the first century felt when they received the letter of 1 Peter. We know from reading through this letter that Peter was aware of the trials that they were experiencing. He knows, for example, that they are being spoken against as evildoers by unbelievers. He mentions in chapter 2 and also in chapter 2 that some of them are suffering under unjust and even physically abusive employers. Some are being slandered and reviled and maligned for living upright lives, he mentions in chapter 3, and insulted for the name of Christ in chapter 4, and even assaulted spiritually by Satan himself who seeks to devour them, he mentions in chapter 5. And yet, Peter's letter is woven through with hope and even joy to the point that throughout church history, Peter, the apostle, is referred to as the apostle of hope in light of his two letters in the New Testament. I wonder if the Christians to whom this letter was first addressed thought, come on, Peter, read the room. We are suffering over here. We're dealing with trials day after day. Would they be wrong in responding that way? Would we be wrong in responding that way? I think so. In fact, I'm sure that that's the case. And, and my prayer is that as we walk through this first section of the letter of 1 Peter, we might all be convinced that though we all might be experiencing various trials as we seek to live faithful to Christ, we have overwhelming reason to rejoice and be hopeful. So let's read this passage together. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though, for, for, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So after the first couple of verses of introduction, Peter, in verse 3, begins his letter with a declaration. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which can also be translated, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to Christians that are exiled throughout Asia and are suffering persecution, and he starts by saying, praise be to God. But he's doing more than making a declaration here. 
He's giving an invitation. He's calling upon these Christians to join him in praising God for his providence that has them in the current circumstances that they are in. And we know that he's not merely making a declaration, but, but giving an invitation, because right after making that statement, he moves immediately to expounding upon the reasons they ought to praise him. He moves, in a sense, to lay down some kindling wood on the altar of their hearts and seeks to ignite the same praise in them that he has. He seeks to reorient their perspective. And he does this by elevating two realities. The first is that God has stored up a great inheritance for you in glory. And second is that God will ensure that you get to see it. So first, God has stored up a great inheritance for you. I'm going to read again from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Throughout this passage, when Peter speaks of our inheritance as Christians, he uses a few different words to describe or to get at the same reality. It's, it's such a great and grand reality that one word won't do. He uses the terms living hope, inheritance, revelation, and salvation. And with all these words, he's getting at the same truth, the same reality. There is a future experience that awaits us, living hope. It is an inheritance in that we did not work for it, but have been given it freely by God. It will manifest fully when Christ is revealed fully to us, whether in our death or in his return. That's the revelation. And it will be the full and final salvation that God is accomplishing for us. So what is this hope? What are these words getting at? In verse 4, this hope, this inheritance, this revelation, this salvation are described with three other words. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So let's look at each of those and see how they give shape to this inheritance of ours. First, imperishable. This literally means not liable to decay. Whatever it is, it's something that will never end. It will never be subject to or affected by decaying influences. It is ours forever and can never be taken from us. Second word, undefiled. To be defiled is to have the intrinsic good of something negatively affected by external corrupting influences. So for example, this same Greek word is used in Hebrews 7 in speaking about Jesus where he's described as Holy, innocent, unstained, that's that same word, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Jesus, though he was in proximity to corrupting influences while here on earth, was never corrupted by them. And the same is true of our inheritance. Nothing will deform or change it. It remains perfect. It remains unstained. And lastly, unfading. A synonym for this would be perennial. Like the word that we use for certain flowers. Which means what? It means that 
it doesn't die, but has perpetual life within it that causes it to endure through long winters and strong storms. It cannot be diminished. So zooming back out altogether, this inheritance, this living hope is described as one that can't be taken, can't be changed, and can't be diminished. Now before going on, I want to pause and speak directly to those here this morning that are not Christians. Those who have not been born again to this living hope or inheritance. And I have a question for you. Is there anything in your life that you can describe with those three words? Or even anything that you hope will be in your life in the future? Your car, your house, your education, your marriage, your children, your money, your health. Every single one of these are subject to decay, to corruption, and will ultimately be stripped from you at some point, either before or at death. Your greatest accomplishments will, in the end, be meaningless. Don't you have a sense that there must be more to live for? Don't you have a desire for something that will endure? Peter, in this passage, is here laying it before you. He's offering it to you. Don't you want it? It can be yours today. So keep listening carefully and you'll find out how. So we have this incredible inheritance kept in heaven for us by the mighty hand of God, secured for us by the death and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, by which this inheritance, inheritance was purchased for us. And to ensure that we will one day see this inheritance and partake of it, God is not only keeping it, keeping it safe, but is also keeping us for that great day. I'm going to read again from verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The same almighty hand that is guarding our inheritance, safe from corruption, safe from defilement, and safe from fading, is the one that guards us from the effects of this world that might keep us from reaching glory and seeing that great day. But this begs the question, what does the death and resurrection of Jesus have to do with us? It makes sense that Jesus, having conquered sin and death, would rise in victory to his glorious inheritance. But why us? Why do we benefit from his triumph? And the answer to this question lies the key to rejoicing in all trials that we encounter in the Christian life. Before answering this question, I want you to consider with me why these Christians that Peter is writing to 
are experiencing such difficulties and trials in their lives. A reading of 1 Peter would reveal that it is due completely to their efforts to live lives of obedience to God's Word. This is the reason the world hates them. This is the reason they're being persecuted and slandered and assaulted. It's because they are swimming upstream in the sinful current of this world. They are cutting against the grain. And why are they, why are they doing this? They're doing it because God has given them a gift. And that gift is faith. They have come to believe and trust in the account of the gospel. This gospel which says that we were made, we are made to know and live for God's glory. Yet, we have given ourselves to other masters. Our own sinful desires being chief among them. And so, we're rightly under the just condemnation of God and subject to His judgment. Yet, in His mercy, God sent us a Savior, His own Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sins and give us His perfect record of obedience and trust so that we might be able to stand blameless before God and inherit eternal life in His imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kingdom. And it is their faith in Christ that has united them to Him and therefore has made His triumph their triumph, His life, their life, His kingdom, their kingdom. One preacher uses a, uh, a story to describe the purpose and effect of faith. He says this, I am told that years ago a boat was shipwrecked above the falls of Niagara, and two men were being carried down the current when people on the shore managed to float a rope out to them, and they both seized it. One of them held fast to it and was safely drawn to the bank. But the other, seeing a large log come floating by, unwisely let go of the rope and clung to the log. For it was bigger and apparently better to cling to. But alas, the log with the men on it went right over the vast abyss because there was no union between the log and the shore. The size of the log was no benefit to him who grasped it, it needed a connection with the shore to produce safety. So when a man trusts in his works, he will not be saved because there is no junction between him and Christ. But faith, though it may seem to be like a slender cord, is in the hands of a great God on the shore. Infinite power pulls the connecting line and thus draws the man from destruction. Oh, the blessedness of faith, for it unites us to God. Blessed faith. This is the means by which God unites us to Christ, and by which all of the benefits of Christ are imparted to us. This is what verse 5 says. When I read it just now a few minutes ago, I left out two words. Let me read it again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It is 
through faith that God is keeping us tethered to Christ. Faith is the rope that has been thrown out to us. Us who by God's grace have laid hold of it and are being drawn to the eternal shore where our inheritance is. Both our inheritance and us, the inheritors, are being kept by the power of this merciful God who gave His beloved Son to purchase it and His immeasurable grace to work faith in us that we might lay hold of it. So this is why these Christians are being called to rejoice because it is the trials that evidence their faith that also evidence their inheritance. Their distinction from the world is what has brought about the persecution they are facing. But it's the same distinction from the world that marks them out as the beneficiaries of God's eternal kingdom. And this is why Peter is the apostle of hope. Because he sees not just the present effect of their faithfulness, but the future inheritance that will come as a result. And this realization produces joy. But not just any fleeting or fair-weather joy, but heavy joy. What do I mean by that? Well, the next thing that Peter does in this passage is he takes that joy and he puts it on a scale to weigh it against the trials that these Christians are currently facing. So read in verse 6 with me. In this you rejoice, though, for an, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. On the one side of the scale is the faith that has united them to Christ and has secured for them an eternal inheritance. And on the other side of the scale are all the various trials that they encounter in the intervening time. Peter calls it a little while until that great eternal day. And as he says in verse 7, that these trials exist to test the genuineness of your faith. Untested faith is no faith at all. But as these trials come, as the current of this world flows stronger and stronger, seeking to loosen your grip from the rope that has drawn you to the shore, each passing victory, each triumph of faith, faith that compels you to cling fast to Christ, acts as a grounds for greater confidence and assurance that the inheritance is, in fact, yours. With so much at stake in the possession of faith or lack of it, every test of faith is a good thing, as it reassures us that we are actually His and do, in fact, have grounds for our confidence and hope that His promises apply to us. Like a clump of shiny dirt that someone might find in a mountain somewhere, 
that's put into a furnace to expose whether or not there is gold in that shiny clump of dirt, so our trials act as that refining fire that bring to the surface and reveal the presence of faith. The faith that brings, sorry, the faith that will act as that golden ticket that provides us entrance into a kingdom that makes Willy Wonka's chocolate factory look like a pitiful reward. And this kingdom is so glorious that upon inheriting it, we will look back over our shoulders at every trial along the way and we will praise God for mercifully giving us a gift that far outweighs them all. The Apostle Paul gets at this reality, reality better and more succinctly than I can. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or in another passage, he says this, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You who hold fast to Christ through every trial, every heartbreak, every form of persecution or discrimination that you face because of your faith will one day result in praise and glory and honor to God for the immeasurable gift of eternal life with Him. And it's that confidence in a bright future that produces in us a present day love and faith and joy. That's how Peter finishes this portion of his letter. Read with me in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Why does Peter go from talking about the glory of heaven to the fact that these Christians have never seen the risen Jesus? That would seem to detract from their confidence. I think to better understand these last couple of verses, we ought to reread from verse 7, and I'm going to make a small edit. So I'm going to change the, word, the words at the revelation of Jesus to when you see Jesus, when he is revealed, when you see him. So from verse 7, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when you see Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is this sure outcome that we anticipate when we see Jesus Christ. And this outcome will result in praise, glory, and honor to God. And it is this assurance of the future result when we see him that produces love, faith, and joy now, today. If you are a Christian, 
God has given you a set of eyes that every one of your unbelieving, non-Christian friends does not have. These eyes enable you to see Christ high and lifted up on the throne of heaven as your King and as your Savior. And it is these eyes that act as the filters by which we interpret the present reality we find ourselves in. Because of these eyes of faith, we love, we believe in, and we rejoice in Christ with a joy that will only fully be expressed in glory. Indeed, it is with these eyes that we produce produce this faith and love and joy that will be the boat that carries us along until that glorious day. And it is by continually uh, looking at the world now through those heavenly eyes that we will endure in joy and faith and love. You may have heard this saying, if you are too heavenly minded, you will be of no earthly good. That's a terrible statement. And it's not true. How many of the temptations to turn away from Christ would we overcome? And how much of the joy in the midst of trials would we know if only in our thoughts we lived more in heaven? When the current of this world would drive us over the Niagara Falls, how we'd be helped by lifting our eyes to the shore where our inheritance awaits. We cannot see it with our head underwater, but should we breathe the air of heaven and turn our sight to the King of heaven, we would be sustained to endure. Again, the Apostle Paul puts it better than me when he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We live now in the age of faith. Where we do not see Christ with our natural eyes. And so, like someone wearing a blindfold as they walk through a landmine, guided only by the voice of a trusted friend, we walk and are led and are guided by the words of God, our trusted friend. God is trustworthy and He leads us by His word in this age of faith, until we finally reach the age of sight. But today, as Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We will one day soon, as Peter says in verse 9, attain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So press on, brothers and sisters, until that great day. Trust the voice of your God who has befriended you and is now guiding you through this world by His Word and His promises. Until, as Peter in the last chapter of this letter says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I want to end by addressing Simona. Where are you, Simona? Simona, who was baptized this morning as a public profession of her trust in and union with Christ. I want the rest of you to listen in as well. Peter baptized you today 
by submerging you in the water as a visible depiction of what you are professing with your mouth and with your life. You are identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ unto an eternal inheritance. My question for you is, would you have allowed Peter, this Peter, to plunge you under the water if you weren't confident that he would pull you up again from it? No. No, Of course you would not. (laughs) But you trust him. Yes. And so you subjected yourselves to the waters. In the same way, just like the going under the water precedes the coming up from it, so our union with Christ in his suffering and rejection and death in this world proceeds our union with him in his resurrection and entrance into glory. You can trust a God who is much more trustworthy than Peter Mahaffey, that he will not subject you to the suffering that comes with being united to Christ in this sinful world beyond what he will empower you to overcome until you finally arise with Christ to eternal life. We are almost home, brothers and sisters. Our inheritance is is fixed and unfading and kept for us by God. We too are kept by God through faith for that inheritance that will make every trial not worthy to be compared to it. So press on and press in even now to know the joy of heaven that overshadows and even strengthens us in the midst of the sorrows of earth. Brothers and sisters, we are, as Romans 8 says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. What a gift you have given to us, Lord. Thank you for being willing to part with your dear and beloved Son, that he might come to earth to rescue us, to impart to us this great inheritance, to make us co-heirs with him. We are undeserving, and yet, Lord, you have done this. And so we thank you. We praise you, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who live in heaven, who live in light of the heavenly reality of our inheritance and our eternal joy with you. That we might be a hopeful people, a joyful people, even in the midst of difficulties. Cause your light to shine upon the darkness of our hearts, that we may rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.